Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Knife. Uh, this is Wu Do here with Megan and Kashup at the 50th anniversary meeting of the American Pediatric Surgical Association. Today we have the distinct honor of sitting with Dr. Keith Ashcraft. He is a former surgeon-in-chief and head of pediatric surgery at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City from 1994 to 1999. He was also a former chairman of the surgical section of the AAP as well as past president of multiple organizations to include APSA and the World Federation of the Associations of Pediatric Surgery. Dr. Ashcraft, it's an honor. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. So we really want to hear from you about where you're from and how did you uh, get into surgery, pediatric surgery? What was your path? Well, I was, uh, I'm from a small town in Kansas, a town of 2,000 people where my father ran the newspaper. And I thought for a while I was going to be a newspaperman, weekly newspaper, but then I was very bored with life in a small town and uh, enjoyed working on my brother-in-law's farm during the summers, at which time I sort of got the idea that I might want to be a veterinarian. Now, I don't know why I got that idea, because the only good horse is a dead horse. And uh, so I, I'm glad I didn't go that route. But I did start out that way at, the, at Kansas State College in Manhattan, where a first-year pre-vet student. The uh, zoology course, which was required, was laboratory was taught by an old fellow by the name of Merville Jennings Harbaugh, who in halftime in the lab, which was a two-hour session, he invited me out to the back porch, bummed a cigarette off of me, which he did virtually every time we had the lab. And then one day he said, you know, Ashcraft, you're wasting your time in veterinary medicine. The way you dissect, you ought to be a surgeon. Well, I fell in with a bunch of electrical engineers my first year in uh, at K-State, and I didn't do too well because we spent a lot of time playing pool and drinking beer. And uh, so I decided to go to the military for a couple of years and get the GI Bill to help me finish college. I went off to uh, the military. I was uh, in a guided missile outfit in El Paso and just an enlisted man for two years. But during the time I was there, I thought, you know, maybe the old guy knew something. So I decided to change my approach to go to medicine. And I know if he thought I was a good surgeon, probably ought to go into surgery. So that's what I did all the way through medical school uh, until I got to, uh, uh, at Kansas, until I got to uh, a surgical internship at Kansas and a general surgery residency at Kansas. Part of the time when I was a medical student, I would go over to the children's hospital in Kansas City. I'd taken my pediatric rotation there and picked up most of the surgical patients that came in. So I spent a lot of my time as a, as a junior medical student on pediatrics in the operating room with Tom Holder, who is a legend in pediatric surgery and uh, became my teacher and my mentor and my partner for uh, many, many years. But uh, when I got done with that, 
I, I did pediatric surgery again at Kansas with Tom Holder. And after two years of that, because he did not only the pediatric surgery, general surgery and urology, he did cardiac surgery. So he had his cardiac boards, uh, his uh, pediatric surgical certification and general surgical boards. So after I finished the two years with Tom Holder, uh, I went to London to the hospital for sick children and did a year of children's cardiac surgery there, which got me uh, qualified for taking the board examination in, in thoracic as well as uh, pediatric surgery. And that uh, sort of how I got there. And so once all this training was complete, what was the next step in your adventure? Well, I went down to Galveston, Texas, because there was only two places that offered me a job. Since with that, with that resume, I wanted to do hearts and I wanted to do urology. Um, I went to uh, Galveston, Texas, where they said, you know, the, it was a single pediatric surgeon there by the name of Ken Tyson, and he um, wanted somebody who could do that, and he did the same sort of spectrum. Then went to the University of Chicago where everything was fine. The cardiac surgeon there, uh, Bob Replogle, uh, wanted me to come, and I could do that. But the assistant dean was a urologist, and he said, no, you can't do urology. So then my only option was to go to Texas. And we weren't very busy down there, and I like to be busy. Can you tell us kind of the full spectrum of cases that you are doing at the time? Well, starting at the top, uh, didn't do any neurosurgery, did a lot of airway surgery, including reconstruction for uh, uh, laryngeal stenosis, uh, all the bronchoscopy removal of foreign bodies, thoracic surgery, uh, lung, hearts of all types, general surgery, and urology. I enjoyed the pediatric urology a great deal because reimplantation of the ureters is a simple operation. And changes the life of a little kid who has recurrent urinary tract infections. But that's that's what I did, and that's what I continued to do until the time I retired. That's fantastic. So we were just hearing some anecdotes, um, and one of those is that you performed an esophageal dilation on yourself. <laughs> I think our listeners would be very interested to hear this story. Well, one of my clinical interests all along was gastroesophageal reflux. And I don't know why that was, except that I had it. And uh, uh, there was a surgeon at Kansas when I was in my general surgery called Alan Thal, who had written a paper on the uh, comprehensive approach to diseases of the distal esophagus. And one of his procedures was to take the, pull the esophagus down into the stomach or into the belly, put the stomach up against and sew the two of them together. Um, so I, I did quite a bit of those. And once we got into the business of doing that, we stopped all this uh, regular uh, wintertime pneumonia that these reflux kids had from aspiration. Well, I uh, awakened one night at home in 1977, and I had reflux and had laryngospasm, and I got out of bed, and I was thinking out about how I could do a tracheostomy on myself with a track two razor. Uh, it didn't work, but the laryng laryngospasm broke. 
And uh, the next day when I was telling Tom about it, he said, well, you need to have that fixed. So I arranged for a general surgeon at uh, St. Luke's Hospital to do this thaw operation. I mean, he said, I've never done a thaw. I do Nissen's all the time. I said, well, I don't think a Nissen's a good operation. So uh, I'll have Tom Holder scrub with you, and he can tell you how to do the thaw, which they did. Uh, but they got the hiatus a little too tight. And I, for six weeks afterwards, I couldn't, could hardly get anything more than liquids down. Finally, when I got back after a vacation to uh, the Virgin Islands, uh, I'd had enough. I took a little cetacane, which the uh, uh, anesthesiologists use for numbing the throat. Uh, took a swig of that and then started out with the mercury bougies and dilated my own esophagus from about a 20 to a 54, I think it was. I've had any trouble since. And no reflux since, and it's been more than 40 years. Now that's a durable operation. <laughs> so we're also joined here by Dr. Stephen Rayner, who uh, <laughs> is one of my attendings, and and he trained with Dr. Ashcraft. And uh, I wanted to hear from him about kind of what did Dr. Ashcraft teach you that sticks with you today when you're seeing your patients and you're teaching us as the you know future generation? Well, I have a lot of sayings that he taught me that I can't repeat probably on this podcast in the era of political uh, correctness. But, uh, you know, when I got down to Kansas City, it was a very well-oiled machine. And, um, you know, uh, Dr. Ashcraft and Dr. Holder and the whole staff down there were consummate surgeons, and they were all uh, uh, excellent technicians and basically just... uh, in addition to teaching me the uh, specifics of an operation, how to do it, uh, taught me the dedication to my patients as well as attention to detail. And uh, it helped not to get tired a lot. They kept us pretty busy. The residents at Mercy were very busy. Steve was one of them. And, you know, we would make evening rounds at 3 o'clock in the morning because we had to make morning rounds at 6 o'clock. So after a long day, we didn't have the opportunity to have a second room or a third room that we could use for emergencies the next day. We just had to keep working until the work was done. Um, But Steve was a good resident. Uh, He worked hard. A A lot of the guys get to the hospital and didn't leave for four or five days, the first four or five days they were there. The nurses would take their socks and underwear home and wash them and bring them back. But uh, they turned out to be a pretty nice bunch. Now, when you look at the current generation of trainees that are coming through in the new era of pediatric surgery compared to the full-spectrum pediatric surgical care you provided back in the day, can you provide some insight from your perspective? Um, one thing that that maybe gives you pause or, or gives you worry and concern, and one thing that gives you hope about the the trajectory going forward? Well, I'll tell you, I'll be very blunt about it. I think the reason I retired at age 64 was because of endoscopic surgery. That's not real surgery. That's just playing games with a scope. And uh, most of the guys who have grown up or grown up now don't know how to operate. My contention is that they ought to have 
Surgeons ought to have two or three years of residency with nothing but open operations so they learn how to handle tissue and how to do things, how to sew the bowel together instead of stapling it. Uh, and then if they want to go on to do laparoscopic stuff later on, that's their business. But they ought to at least know the classical forms of surgery before they get into the endoscopic. Um, the idea of interposing a robot between you and the patient is just anathema to me. It's just awful. It, surgery is a very personal kind of uh, practice, and you need to get right in there and get do the things yourself. Very tactile. And uh, you can't do that with a robot or a scope or anything like that. It just seems to me that uh, people are not going to be trained to do what they need to do should the occasion arise. Now, when you're at these sorts of meetings and you have, you see the debate sessions and you see people that push back against that and say, well, that may be the case and we may you know, suffer for some part of it, but you also see that patient outcomes are, are appear to be going in the right direction with minimally invasive surgery compared to open options. What sort of rebuttal do you have against that? Well, first of all, I disagree with that assessment that they're getting better. Uh, uh, endoscopic procedures are a lot more expensive because you have a lot more equipment. You have a lot of disposable stuff and all of that stuff costs money. But the uh, if you're expeditious with an open operation, you can do an operation very, very much more quickly than you can do it endoscopically, besides all the setup time and the turnover time and all of that. Uh, I don't think the results are any better, and I think it's a lot more expensive. Um, I think that you, if you if you know what you're doing, the results ought to be fine with classical surgery. So, with that said, what gives you hope about the future of pediatric surgery? Looking at um, the the younger generation now, well, I can't say there's a whole lot that does. Um, first of all. There are too many pediatric surgeons. I understand that there are 1,400 members of APSA now uh, and a lot more in training. And I hate to discourage people who are going to train in pediatric surgery. But somebody told me yesterday that the most common operation done by pediatric surgeons nowadays was the insertion of a central venous line. You can teach a nurse to do that in a week. And anesthesiologists do it regularly. So why the pediatric surgeons have to do things like that? They ought to be operating on esophageal atresias. Uh, it's just one of those things. I think the, uh, the splintering of urology off from general pediatric surgery has been a sad thing. But the urologists need something to do. Uh, so they've, they've done it. Cardiac surgery... It probably should not be included in the in pediatric surgical training. But the one big advantage, and I think Steve proves that point, is that when you do uh, an open heart operation, somebody stays at night and watches them, and they get a lot of experience out of that. I spent a lot of nights, even when I was on the staff, staying with the more complex things. But you've got to learn to take care of the acute situations. You can't just turn it all over to the cardiologists or the, the uh, medical doctors. 
uh, after in the post-operative period. Yeah, actually, Dr. Rayner and I at dinner were having this conversation about how he gets a gut feeling that he can't really explain to us um, when we discuss a consult with him. And that's due to the years that he spent at the patient's bedside. And our training paradigm has shifted a little bit, especially with the introduction of the electronic medical record. And, and you know, we spend a lot of time facing a computer. And um, so that's definitely something that even we as trainees, we think about. And it's something that we know that we're going to have to face in the future. So I guess I'm going to shift gears back to uh, you know, you had a wonderful tribute. I know you didn't get to see the video, but um, they had a wonderful tribute to you. You are known as a leader in pediatric surgery. And when you look back on your storied career, what are you most proud of? What do you want your legacy to be? Well, I think that I took good care of patients and that uh, the pediatric population that I served was better off for my having been there. And that's enough of a legacy. Dr. Rayner, any last departing comments? Well, it was a pleasure to work with Keith, and it was a pleasure to work with Tom Holder and Ron Sharp and Ray Amory and Pat Murphy. Uh, They did a great job. Uh, They were uh, in an era where you could uh, make great contributions in identifying how to take care of diseases, things that we do now that are just sort of uh, standard stuff. Dr. Ashcraft and Dr. Holder had a lot to do with defining those pathways. So uh, I think there's plenty they'll be remembered for, and they've touched a lot of lives, not only through the patients they took care of, but through the people they've taught and their ongoing legacy. Now that Steve brought it up, was I was born in 1935. The first survivor of esophageal atresia was 1936. Before that time, it was 100% mortality. Nowadays it ought to be 100% survival, except for the very complicated things, and most of those serious complications are cardiac. So you get to see the disease all the way through, from no survivors to almost everybody survives, and it's kind of fun. Pretty profound. Profound indeed. Well, thank you both for your time. Uh, It was such a pleasure to sit with you today. Until next time, dominate the day.